0: Alright, so the name of this ministry is Wellspring, as you guys know, and um, our theme verse right there is Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, and that's where the name for this women's ministry comes from. A lot of you may have the ESV, like me, and it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now... Um, I think later on you're going to get to hear Jacob Hantla. I don't think he has spoken yet this year, right? And he's going to teach you a lot more in-depth on that specific verse. But as I was kind of reviewing the disciplines on my own before coming today, I read through the whole chapter of Proverbs 4 just to kind of refresh myself on that verse. So I wanted to, to share with you some of the things that I noticed from the context of this verse. So Proverbs 4 is a whole chapter devoted to a father entreating his son to take care over his inner person. The father is urging his son to be diligent in putting wisdom and truth before his eyes and in his ears. The father is exhorting his son to think about what inputs he's allowing to affect his heart, which is his inner person. He wants him to be intentional in making sure that the input is God's wisdom. So he talks about his ears and his eyes. He said um, just keep God's wisdom before your eyes constantly. Then the father tells his son to be mindful of what comes out of him. He talks about his speech and he warns him to watch over his feet. So um, we know that, we already know that whatever comes out of our mouth is what's in our hearts. So that's why he's saying, watch your speech. But he says to watch his feet, which has to do with guarding our ways, guarding our manner of living. The way that we make decisions and our actions say a lot about how we are shepherding our hearts. So I just thought that was neat to see that verse in this setting of watching over all these things that are either inputs and our outputs. And that all has to do with guarding our heart. Then we can go on down to the purpose of Wellspring, which is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. So that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And just notice in that statement the tool that we're to use to shepherd our hearts. The tool is the Word of God. One thing that I hope you'll see in our lesson on Hannah this morning is that she had a firm understanding of who God is. The second prayer that's recorded in the Bible that she gives um, is just full of truth about God. Our prayers reflect what we meditate on, so we're only going to be able to pray according to how we're thinking and what we're spending our time thinking about. When we shepherd our hearts with the Word of God, we are going to be able to pray like Hannah did when she presented Samuel at the tabernacle. Then the first discipline is um, discipline one, the heart. It says, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God and in particular the gospel. This lesson on Hannah is a wonderful example of a woman who prayerfully shepherded her heart. She's also a good example of a woman who allowed others to help her shepherd her heart. She didn't resist input or shepherding from others in spite of their sin. She exemplified humility in this aspect of her life. Then our second discipline, discipline two, it's about the home. It says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And then discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Okay, let's get started on our lesson, which is a biography, the biography of Hannah. So if you'd like to go ahead and turn to First Samuel 1 and 2. You can do that while I kind of set this up. I actually love to read biographies. And until I had kids, it probably was my favorite genre. I love, now I love, probably my favorite right now is the cute children's books or clever children's books. I I don't know if I'll, I think I'll always just love them. There's just some from when my kids were little that I just love. And I, I still enjoy reading like the little kid books with them. But um, aside from that genre of books, biographies are my favorite um, genre, my second favorite. Biographies are fun to read because they're a story, and they're a story about a real person. Um, you can even enjoy reading about kind of a horrible person, you know, just even like kind of getting into their shoes and seeing what they were like. Um, when we read about someone's life, we see them um, who is a, per- a person just like us. They were born into a world of sin, They were born into a setting that they didn't pick. It was picked for them, just like us. And yet this person was born into a world that experiences so much of God's grace and provision. It's interesting to see what shapes a person and to see why they make the choices that they do. Have you ever read a biography and then become intrigued by a side character in that person's life? The book of 1 Samuel is mostly about Saul and David, Israel's first two kings. There's a significant character in this book and his name is Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. He was a godly man who experienced favor with God and men. God spoke to him and God worked through him for a long time. Samuel was the one who led the nation in feasts and offerings to God. He was the one who helped the nation of Israel repent after 20 years from the time the ark had been taken from them, and then it came back to them, it was left in a remote area, they finally came after 20 years to him and said, we were wrong, we need to repent. He, he led them in that. Samuel anointed Saul to be the first king. He prayed for Israel as a nation, and he warned them about selecting a human king. He was the one who passed on God's word of condemnation to Saul letting Saul know that God was going to take away his kingship from him and from his line. Samuel was the one who anointed David to be the king after Saul. And at the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel had nothing bad to say about him personally. Samuel was a good leader in a rough time. He stands in sharp contrast to Eli, who was the previous spiritual leader in Israel, and Eli's sons, who were also priests. And Samuel stands in contrast to the next leader of Israel, which was Saul. So this morning we're going to meet a side character in Samuel's biography. There's a woman behind this man, and it is Hannah, his mother. So I made the title of this lesson, The Holy Spirit's Biography of Hannah. And the subtitle is A Woman Who Exemplified Humility, Prayerfulness, Love, and Faith and we're going to break this biography up into four sections. The first one is Hannah's Hardship, then Hannah's Humility, Hannah's Homework for an Homage to Yahweh, and then fourth, the last one, is Hannah's Harvest. And so let's go ahead and pray before we jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the women in this room and for um, the study and the preparation that they have done um, before coming today. And God, I just pray that our hearts, all of our hearts, would be soft to your word this morning. We know, God, that you use your word to do your work, and you use your word to reveal yourself to us. And God, we want to know you, and we want to know how we can live to please you. We want to remember your great gift to us in Christ, our Messiah, the one who um, provides righteousness and life and forgiveness to all that trust in him. I just pray, God, that this time would be a blessing to everyone that's here, and I pray that it would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read verses 1 to 8. Um, Well, actually, before we read this, I'm going to tell you um, 1 to 8 is kind of like Hannah's specific setting. Like if you're going to have a setting in the book, this is her setting. But before we jump into her specific setting, I want to talk about the general setting that she lived in. So Hannah lives in the time of the judges, and if you will remember, the last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So I want to just remind you of some of the stories from the book of Judges. There's a lot of really not great stories, but they're recorded for us for a purpose. Um, There was a young man named Micah, and he stole money from his mom, and then he made a metal image with that money. He then set up a shrine for it, and he hired a Levite to be his personal priest in his home. Um, at that, t- like After that happened, a few people from the tribe of Dan came to his house, and they saw all of his stuff, and they decided they wanted to steal it. So they stole his household gods, this guy named Micah's gods. They stole the metal image that he had made, and they stole his priest. Then they went to a quiet and unsuspecting town. That's what the Bible says. And they burned down all the people that were in it, burned down the town. They rebuilt the town, and then they lived in it with this metal image and the priest that they had stolen from Micah. Okay, and there's a second story I'll share. Um, You might remember the story of the Levite who had a concubine who left him, and he went to go get her back from her dad's house. As they were traveling home, they stopped in the town of Gibeah, and he offers his concubine to the men of that city to molest instead of him. She dies, and in the morning, the Levite puts her on a donkey, goes home, and then he sends pieces of her body to all the tribes of Israel to make a statement about the debauchery and sinfulness of the tribe of Benjamin. So that is the environment. That's the culture that Hannah lives in. There are also things going on outside of, that's within Israel, but outside of Israel, there are wars going on, especially with the Philistines. That's when the ark is taken later on in Samuel's life. So there was a lot going on at this time. Then in terms of revelation from God and scripture, Hannah had the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then at this point, the book of Joshua would have been written and then added to the Pentateuch. And also people are, um, there were prophets. God was revealing specific revelation of himself through prophets. However, In 1 Samuel 3, we see that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, it says, and that there were no frequent visions. So maybe there were a few, but it wasn't common. So really what she had was six books of the Bible. That was her revelation from God. Okay, so let's read verses 1 to 8. Actually, I'm going to read the first half of 9 because it kind of concludes it. All right. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat, and Elkanah her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. All right, there are a a lot of characters to take note of in the introduction. There's Hannah's husband. There's his second wife, um, or yeah, his second wife, Penina. There's Eli, the priest, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And then there's Penina's sons and daughters. We get information on Elkanah, who is H- Hannah's husband first. He um, lived in Ephraim, but he is actually from the tribe of Levi. So you probably remember that the tribe of Levi was not given a land inheritance, but they were allotted portions of land in other tribes in which to live and farm. So it looks as if he lived in Ephraim there. The Lord was to be the, their inheritance for the tribe of Levi. They were to serve at certain times in the tabernacle worship by either maintaining the place or the items used in it or by leading worship there is a record of elkanah's lineage in first chronicles 6 and it lists his ancestors and his descendants that lived in, or i mean sorry that served in the temple so we know she was married to a levite we can infer from the order in which the wives are listed that elkanah married hannah first since she was unable to conceive children it seems that he married penina And this was common somewhat in their culture because of the importance placed on passing on a name, passing on land, to children. This was not God's plan for marriage, and it never has been. From the beginning, God set up marriage to include just a husband and a wife. In Genesis 2, we see the first marriage. God instructed that a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, which is singular. The word is singular and the example with Eve is singular. And then he says they shall become one flesh. Then in Jesus' earthly ministry, when he taught about marriage, he reiterated that truth, that from the beginning, God made it known that he had created male and female and that the two should become one flesh and they were to not be separated as long as they lived. The math is simple, two become one. We also know that the qualification for a pastor and elder in the church is that they are a one-woman man. So even though polygamy was never God's design for marriage, it was somewhat common. And I just say somewhat because you had to be moderately wealthy at the least to afford more than one wife. So it's mostly kings that we see having multiple wives. So this is the reality that we find Hannah in. She is the first wife of Elkanah, and he married another woman to bear children. We also see that Elkanah is a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, and he leads his entire household in this worship. They lived anywhere from 10 to 25 miles from Shiloh, which is not far. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was located and in the tabernacle was the Ark of God. And that's where God's specific presence in Israel was. So they would go up for the required feast each year and only men were actually required to go, but this entire family goes up. So we can just assume, infer from this, that this was due to Elkanah's leadership. It was important to him to have everyone go up. Elkanah would offer to the Lord sacrifices, and he would worship, and then he would eat with his family as the law prescribed. He would give portions to everyone, and then he would give double to Hannah. There's evidence in this biography of a genuine love between these two, between Elkanah and Hannah. He loves Hannah, and his love is expressed in actions and words. He gives double to her. He also tries his best to comfort her and to help her when he sees that she's distressed. He seems to respect her as a godly woman, and he trusts her decisions. We'll see that later on in the passage. Even though Hannah wants so desperately to have children, there's no evidence that Hannah is angry with her husband or with God for her circumstances. and um, She doesn't even revile Elkanah for marrying Penina, as far as we can see. That doesn't even seem like it's an issue. brought up, it, it's not recorded. Rival wives occur other time in scripture and one example is Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Even though Sarah was the one that came up with the idea for Abraham to take um, Hagar as a second wife, um, she is the one that becomes bitter towards Hagar and toward Abraham for it. So it wasn't right that Elkanah had a second wife. Um, it was a poor decision and it was a decision that cost Hannah greatly just in her daily life. But There really is a sweet love between these two, which is kind of amazing in spite of their circumstance. Next, we see that Penina is not only fertile, able to have children, but she is feisty. She especially liked to irritate Hannah whenever they would go up to worship God. It may have been because that's when she really noticed his preference or his love for Hannah, or maybe there was some sort of unity between the two in worshiping God that she didn't share in. But whatever the motive, we know that she was relentless in goading Hannah, and she picked the one area that Hannah had no control over that was a sorrow to her, and that's what she picked to um, just poke at. Um, The Bible says that she would provoke grievously Hannah to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. She was causing excessive sorrow, and that went on year after year. So, what is the result of this setting? Barren but loved, living with a second wife and her children, mocked and provoked by Penina, desiring greatly to be a mother, verse 7 says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now there were laws about not partaking in a feast if you're mourning. So it could be that Hannah didn't want to participate in celebrating peace with God when her heart was so distressed. Or it could be that she just really physically didn't feel like she could eat. The feast was intended to be a joyful time, a time to rejoice in one's peace with God that he grants through sacrifice. And Elkanah is really sad to see her so distressed. He tries to encourage her, and he's maybe even kind of giving her a gentle rebuke um, by reminding her that she is very loved by him. They both know that there's nothing either one of them can do. The text says the Lord had closed her womb. They knew that it was from the Lord. There was nothing they could do. However... Um, he wants her to know that he loves her. And I love what Matthew Henry said about this section of First Samuel in his commentary. He writes, Our sorrow, upon any account, is sinful, and it's inordinate when it diverts us from our duty to God and embitters our comfort in Him, when it makes us unthankful for the mercies we enjoy and distrustful of the goodness of God to us in further mercies when it casts a damp upon our joy in Christ and hinders us from doing the duty and taking the comfort of our particular relations. And then he quotes um, his own version of what Elkanah said. Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Thou knowest thou hast my entire affection and let that comfort thee. And then Henry says, we ought to take notice of our comforts to keep us from grieving excessively for our crosses. For our crosses we deserve, but our comforts we have forfeited. If we would keep the balance even, we must look at that which is for us as well as that which is against us. Else we are unjust to providence, with a capital P, and unkind to ourselves. God hath set the one over against the other, Ecclesiastes 7.14, and so should we. So in other words, we have to be able to recognize that our sorrow is inordinate or excessive when it keeps us from obeying God and it keeps us from taking comfort in Him. He is the God of comfort and we need to repent from any sorrow that would keep us from enjoying that comfort. It's only to our joy that we trust God's goodness in the midst of our sorrow. Matthew Henry instructs us to take notice of our comforts because that will keep us from grieving excessively, he says, and then he cited Ecclesiastes 7:14, which says, "God has made the day of pr- prosperity as well as the day of adversity." So Hannah, to her credit, accepts Elkanah's words of comfort. They may or may not have actually been truly comforting to her, but grace, humility, and love cause us to take comfort from those who love us and who intend to comfort us, even if it's not exactly what we wanted to hear or how we wanted to be comforted. After her husband talked to her and tried to comfort her with his love, she went ahead and made a choice. She chose to eat and drink with the family. She didn't sit there just wallowing in pity or or making him feel bad because he couldn't do anything to change the situation. But she made a choice with her will, and that choice flowed out of a godly character and her inner person. That's why I went ahead and read the first half of verse 9. It just shows she did go ahead and eat with them. Okay, so now that's our setting. That's Hannah's setting for her biography. Let's move on to the next section. Um, The next section, verses 9 to 20, I've called Hannah's humility. We've already seen... Quite a bit of evidence that she is humble in the first section, but there's even more evidence in the second. It's inspiring and convicting. And up to now, we've um, just had the Holy Spirit's descriptions of Hannah. As we, as I read the next section, you can just think, how does Hannah describe herself? Look for autobiographical material. Um, what does she? How does she interpret her situation, and how does she see herself? Okay, verses nine to twenty. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. First off, we already noted that Hannah exemplified humility in her choice to eat and drink with the family in that feast to Yahweh. But as soon as she's done eating and drinking, Hannah's heart is still in turmoil. She leaves and she runs out to go pray. Um, We see that Eli is sitting in the temple. He's overseeing the affairs that are going on in the place of worship. The Holy Spirit tells us that Hannah was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with being deeply distressed, weeping bitterly and crying out to your maker, knowing that only he can give you the comfort and the help that you're seeking? Two verses come to mind. Um, when I imagine this scene. The first one is First Peter 5, 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then the First Peter 5 of the Old Testament, which is Psalms 55, 22. It says, Cast your burden on Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hannah is casting her burden on the Lord. Did you notice Hannah's description of herself? She says that she's afflicted, and then she calls herself Yahweh's servant three times when she's praying to him. Then when she talks to Eli, she describes herself as a woman who is troubled in spirit. She's someone that's not been drinking strong drink. She's someone who's been pouring out her soul before the Lord, one who's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation, And then again, she calls herself a servant when she's talking to Eli. This time she's calling herself Eli's servant. Hannah sees herself as weak, troubled, distressed, unable to do anything about her situation except to pray and pour her heart out to the Lord. She does not see God as her servant, but she is his. She's in an undesirable situation according to the wisdom of the world, but she is in the best state when it comes to spiritual matters. God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. One commentator wrote, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop that he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven there are some encouragements we can take away immediately from this book um, or this biography of Hannah. God used the intentional mean-spirited provocation of Penina as well as Hannah's own barrenness to drive Hannah to desperate prayer. Her heart was in agony and she knew of only one recourse and that was prayer. She cast herself upon Yahweh and poured out her soul to him. Not only can we probably identify with her In this agony at some point in our lives, um, feeling totally broken and just uh, really feeling agony of soul, there is someone else who can identify with her to an even greater degree. Uh, Luke 22 says that Jesus himself was in agony of spirit before he was arrested to be crucified. He was in the garden. Um, Verse 44 of Luke 22 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Now, Hannah's agony and our agony cannot be put on the same level, obviously, as Jesus' agony over the anticipation of bearing sin and its punishment. But we can be encouraged that our sympathetic Savior knows what it is like to be in agony of spirit. And his agony led him to pray more earnestly. So if that's what Jesus did, we certainly need to do the same. That's what Hannah did. Then notice also the specific request that Hannah makes of God. In verse 11, we see that she's making a vow. She's asking something of God, and then she is promising something back to him. She asks three things from him. First, she's asking that Yahweh would look on her affliction. It's like she's saying, Lord, I know that you know all and you see everything, and I can make an appeal to your mercy and your loving kindness." And I want to ask you that you would look on my affliction. This is hard. It's heavy. Please look at this and just see my broken heart. Then secondly, she asked that Yahweh would remember her and not forget her. Please remember me, your servant. I am yours. I belong to you. And my role is to serve you. I don't see you as my genie in the bottle or as my servant. I am yours. And I'm asking you to remember me and not forget me in light of what's troubling my heart. Thirdly, she asks specifically for a son. She does not ask for many. She asks for one. She would be happy with just one, and she prays specifically for a a male child. She wants to be able to raise up a son who can serve God in a special way and belong to him uh, for the rest of his life. She would love to have a child that she could train and give back to God. She promises that she would give him back to God and that she would keep him under a Nazarite vow for the whole of his life. Now, both Levitical service and Nazarite vows were temporary. Um, Neither were expected to be lifelong vows of service. The only other example of a lifelong vow for a Nazarite was Samson, who was a judge before Samuel. So for those of you who are at the women's retreat this year, you'll remember that Josh taught on prayer. When he taught on the prayer that Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, he brought out the truth that prayer is not God submitting to what we think should happen. Daniel was asking God for great things for himself and for the Hebrew people, but they were things that God had promised. Now, Hannah had not been promised a son, but it's clear that she viewed herself as the one who would submit to God, not God to her. She is God's servant, and she also knows that he's powerful, and he's able to answer the request um, if he would choose to do it. One of the big takeaways for me from the retreat was um, what Josh taught about praying in Jesus' name. He said that praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to God's will. It's praying consistently with who Jesus is. So if our prayers are rooted in selfishness, then we're not praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is a heart motive. Now obviously Hannah didn't tag on in Jesus' name. She didn't know the name of Jesus um, at the end of her prayer. But it's evident that her prayer was not rooted in selfishness. It was rooted in a desire to see God glorified and a desire to serve God by raising a godly son. Verse 12 says that Hannah continued praying before Yahweh. So there's more that Hannah prayed. We don't know exactly what it was, but she continued on praying. And what we do know um, is that Hannah had confidence in Yahweh's ability and willingness to hear her prayers. It's according to his character to hear the prayer of the humble and the destitute, and to take notice of hearts that are wholly his. She belongs to God, and she trusts him, and she feels the freedom to ask for the deepest desire of her heart. Eli sees her mouth moving, and he doesn't hear any words, so he assumes the worst, and he's very wrong. Eli's assumption is sort of understandable um, when you consider the way that sin was abounding in the way it was manifested, even in temple worship. Um, His sons were a good example of why he could suspect people, Um, They were greedy and they were um, immoral and they were not worshiping God the way that God had prescribed. So even though it's kind of understandable why Eli did this, he's not off the hook. And there is a good reminder for us here. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So Eli indeed was acting foolishly. He rebuked Hannah and he was completely wrong. But here again... I'm glad it's recorded because we get to see the grace and the humility that reside in Hannah's heart. Hannah could have looked at her situation this way. Man, I have just been unjustly provoked by Penina for years over something I have no control over, absolutely no control over. And I want so badly to be a mom, and I'm continually reminded that I'm not and that I won't be for a while. And my husband has now just lovingly rebuked me to remember that he loves me and even though it's loving, it's hard to be rebuked. And um, here I am. I made a decision to eat with a family and do what's right. And I just came here and I just want to pour my heart out to the Lord. And then when I come here, Eli, the priest, who's supposed to be my spiritual shepherd, um, unjustly rebukes me. So she has a lot of reasons that she could feel sorry for herself. In fact, there's things about Eli that Hannah could have accused him of that actually would have been valid. But that's not what Hannah does. What do we see come out of her mouth? We see only the evidence of grace and humility that reside in her heart. She's in a dark hour and she got bumped. And what came out of her heart? It's not bitterness or anger. Her humility toward Eli is sweet. Hannah did not repay evil for evil, but she does give an account of herself to Eli to correct his misconceptions. She did it so sweetly and so transparently that Eli um, is moved from one end of an impression to her to the exact opposite. She tells him that she hasn't been drinking, she's troubled in spirit, she's pouring her heart out to the Lord, and she's speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. She calls herself Eli's servant because she sees him as an authority. She honors him in that role, and she speaks to him in a manner according to her respect for that position. So I thought it was also interesting that Hannah doesn't feel the need to tell him the content of her prayer she's not telling him her tale of woe Um, she doesn't let him know so that he can pray too now we do have the privilege of praying for each other but our hope cannot be in other people or their prayers our hope has to be in God himself she knows that she's left her request with the only one who can do anything about the situation and it just demonstrates where her faith is placed She doesn't lay the burden of her unmet desires on her husband or on Eli at this point. Then Eli, to his credit, is not defensive in explaining himself to Hannah of why he made such a bad rebuke. He just does a 180, and he basically says amen to her prayer. He doesn't really know the details, but he seems to be convinced that um, what he had assumed about her was totally wrong, and he wants um, God to grant the prayer that she had asked. So now we're at the part that I find very encouraging. Hannah leaves the temple or the tabernacle. She ate and her face was no longer sad. Was Hannah pregnant at this point? No. Was she certain that she would become pregnant? I don't think so. This is encouraging because we know it's possible to have joy without the desires of our heart being met. We can cast our cares on the Lord and then walk away with a joyful countenance. It is possible. Matthew Henry, again, I'll quote him on this section. He writes, Hannah believed that God would either give her the mercy that she had prayed for or make up the want of it to her some other way. She didn't have a promise that Yahweh was going to give her what she would prayed for. Um, Eli giving an a, amen or so be it to her prayer was not special revelation that she could know, oh, okay, God's going to answer this prayer. Her countenance changed because she had poured her heart out before the Lord and she trusted him, and she knew that he would do what is right. The next morning, the family rises early to worship before the Lord, and then they head back home to Ramah. It seems that right away, Hannah experiences the answer to her prayers. Verse 19 says that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's exactly the wording from Hannah's prayer. She asked Yahweh to remember her, and he did. He knows the details of our lives. He sees it all. He remembered Hannah, and she conceived. She had a son, the son that she had asked for. And what did she name him? She gave him a name that would remind her every time she called him to her, every time she said it, that God had heard her prayer. She named him Samuel, which means, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Samuel's name would also be a reminder to Samuel himself of the prayer his mom had made for him before he was even created it would remind him of her dedication of him to Yahweh for all of his life. One of the commentators I read gave a personal account of his childhood that I thought was really sweet. He said his family was very consistent in family worship. His dad usually led it, but when his dad was out of town, his mom would lead family worship. So they would read scripture and then um, she would pray. And he said he always half dreaded the nights that his dad was gone when his mom led worship. And it was because um, at the end of their family worship time, she would pray for each of the five boys um, by name. And he said to hear his mother's heart expressed in prayer, to know that they were hers, but she wanted nothing more than that they would each belong to God, was so moving to him as a boy that he would often have tears in his eyes um, at the end of prayer time. And he was the youngest, and he didn't didn't want his brothers to see him crying, which is why he half-dreaded it. But I just thought it was so sweet to have that example of a mom who loves her children, knows that they're hers, but wants nothing more for them than that they belong to God. And then she prays to that end. Okay, so so far in Hannah's biography, we've seen the setting, which is her hardship. We've seen her humility on display in her prayers, and in her interactions with her husband, um, and her interaction with Eli, really, with even in the way she's interacting with God. Now we're going to see her heart expressed in her work at home as a mother for the first three years of Samuel's life. Then we'll see the honor and the homage she gives to God when she goes back to the temple with Samuel to present him. Let's read um, chapter 1, verses 22 to 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three year old bull, an epha of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah has now given birth to Samuel. It's time to go up to Shiloh for the sacrifice before the Lord and to feast before Yahweh. And it sounds that Elkanah had a vow to pay. We don't know what it was. It's possible that maybe he had made a vow to the Lord regarding this wife that he loved, his beloved wife. If she had a child, then he would um, pay some sort of vow. Um, But he needed to go up as well. And then Hannah tells her husband that she's not going to go up at this time, but she's going to stay home until she weans Samuel. Elkanah trusts her decision and her resolve, and I think this is just another little window into their marriage. There just seems to be mutual trust and respect between the two of them. In the Old Testament law, a woman's vow to God could be canceled by her husband if he didn't agree. So obviously Elkanah was in agreement with Hannah's vow that she'd made on her own in the temple before Samuel was born. And Elkanah just says, okay, do what seems best to you, only may God establish his word. So it could be that what he means by that is it seems that God has answered your prayer, and um, in order for this whole vow to come to fruition, we need Samuel to make it through infancy, um, so that he can go and we can complete this whole vow. So maybe he's, that's what he's saying. So um, we do see that Hannah's homework is very important to her. She most likely nursed him until he was three. That seems to be the consensus on that time. What they would have, how long they would have nursed, but. So she has a short time to take care of him. She has a short time to enjoy him and to hold him and to train him. She wants to make the most of that time and not leave him with anyone else to nurse him while she goes and visits Shiloh. So again, I don't really know why she couldn't just take him with her, but it doesn't seem that that was an option. So she either would stay home with him or she'd leave him with someone else to take care of. So she chooses to stay home. We just see, all we can really concretely observe from the text is that during these years she made staying home with Samuel and nursing him her priority. We know that Samuel had to be prepared at home for what he was about to do with his life. Think about what kind of training it must must have taken place so that a three-year-old is not left kicking and screaming and crying after his mom when he's dropped off at the temple. And he's not just being dropped off to be taken care of, he's being dropped off to help out. So I think there had to be a lot of training regarding authority and obedience (coughs) so that when Hannah and Elkanah transfer authority over to Eli, Samuel's not um, surprised. He's prepared for it. Hannah was the first one to teach Samuel about Yahweh. She was the one who directed his learning and directed his interest. She was intentionally preparing him for a lifetime of service to Yahweh. When it's time and Samuel was weaned, Hannah and her husband take Samuel along with sacrifice offerings to the temple in Shiloh. There is no sense of sorrow or sadness in this scene, there is only joy and exaltation of God, and an amazement at God's kindness to her. And this is where we see the greatest evidence that Hannah's desire for a child was not idolatrous. She was not just asking to get something she wanted; she wanted to give to. She was given herself to the Lord, um, and she wanted the privilege of giving um, a child back to Yahweh. The phrase "as long as He lives." He is lent to the Lord. It just seemed to ring in my ears this time as I restudied the passage. This was not a temporary lending. This was not just a year or three years or ten years, but it's as long as he lives, he belongs to the Lord. He's not Hannah's. Hannah, no doubt, had motherly influence on Samuel, but her influence was purposely to point him to serving Yahweh. So, Hannah presents Samuel to Eli and then she says, I'm lending him to Yahweh to dwell before God at the temple in Shiloh. And this is where we see her give honor to God. She prays again. And let's read her prayer. It's in chapter 2, 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This time her prayer is not silent. It's not just between herself and God alone. It is a praise that is spoken and it's meant to be heard. It's to Yahweh and it's for the benefit of those who are near enough to hear it. And we can add that we're near enough to hear it by reading scripture. She wants to give praise where praise is due. She says that her heart exalts and that her strength is exalted in Yahweh. God has answered her prayer, and she who is without strength, who is desperate, unable, grieving, vexed, distressed, has strength, but is the strength that's given to her from God. It's not her own. Then notice the object of Hannah's praise. It's Yahweh. She does not even mention Samuel by name. She seems to overlook the gift and just praises the giver. I'm actually struck by the lack of mention of Samuel. Hannah didn't speak about how wonderful and smart and handsome this miracle baby was. She was truly more in awe of the one who had given her this gift than in awe of the gift itself. Matthew Henry again writes, Every stream should lead us to the fountain. There may be other Samuels, but no other Yahweh. What does Hannah know about God? Well, she knows that there is no one who is completely holy or set apart like he is. He is the only one and he is a rock. That means he's stable, he's a protector. Hannah has found relief and comfort in that aspect of Yahweh. She also knows that he's all-knowing, he's omniscient. Verse 5 says, Yahweh is a God of knowledge, he weighs the actions of man. He sees into the heart, he can observe all the motives behind an action. So because of that, there is really no room for arrogant speech from the mouths of men. She knew that God was intimately knowledgeable of her heart, as well as every heart that exists. In the rest of her prayer, she talks about God in relation to different categories of people. She lists a lot of different categories. Some are positive and some are negative. Um, she talks about those who are mighty, who are full, those who have borne seven children, the wicked, adversaries of Yahweh. She mentions the feeble, hungry, barren, needy, poor, the faithful ones that belong to God. There are people who are strong, who seem to lack nothing in worldly comforts, who have all they've desired, but in a moment, god can make them poor and needy lacking and desperate and it's just as easy for him to go the other way to cause the hungry and the poor and the barren to be wealthy and full and abounding with children so we don't have to figure out which category and how we get in which category we just are are supposed to know that all these categories have one thing in common that god is in control of those circumstances and he can change it in a second if he wants to if it's according to his will Yahweh kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He makes rich and he makes poor. So regardless of the situation, we can be sure that we are in God's hands. We are not the masters of our own fate. The earth belongs to him, and and he is the one who sustains it and supports it. And then notice the personal comfort we can take in verse 9. Hannah says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He's protecting the way or the path of his children for our good because he is good and merciful. He's in control of our circumstances but that's not all. He's actually protecting us as we're walking and living on the earth. So as dismal as a situation may be we can trust that God has not just dropped us into a hard circumstance. He may have dropped us in a hard circumstance but it's not just that. He is actually protecting our path as we're walking through that hard circumstance. Now that is not true for God's adversaries. Is he in control of their circumstances? Yes, but protecting their way? No, he's not. Those who are against him, their path will be cut off in darkness. It's like their path just runs up into a wall and it's all over. The only place they find themselves is in darkness and then they're broken in pieces, it says, being judged by Yahweh. Hannah knows that God will judge the ends of the earth. She also knows that God will give strength to his king. And that's an interesting reference because there is no king in Israel at this time. So Hannah has obviously heard something from scripture that would cause her to say this. She's heard that there's a promised seed, specifically promised to Eve, and that seed from Eve will pre- um, free people from Satan. She also knows from Moses in the Pentateuch that it says the scepter will not pass from Judah. It will belong to Judah. It will not pass from that tribe. So she's looking forward to this promised king, who she also calls God's anointed. The English word Messiah represents the Hebrew word here that she uses, anointed. So Hannah has hope in God's future plan for human history. It must have seemed very foggy. You know, just what does that mean? The scepter's not gonna pass and there's a seed, but I trust it, there's somebody somehow coming and God has a plan for us through this person. Hannah's prayer reveals a heart that is grounded in the knowledge of God's character. She knows that God possesses um, a macro rule over the universe, and he also has micro rule over just the little events of each individual's life. She knows that God is kind and that he is especially protective of his faithful ones as they live and move upon the earth. He also has a long-term plan for all of human history, and it culminates in this anointed one, the Messiah. Her love for God pours out of this prayer, and her humility is again on display. How could she be anything but humble with this view of God? All right, so the last section, I've just kind of tagged on bits and pieces of Samuel's life, and I think you guys might have references of chapter 2, different verses in chapter 2. You can just say actually chapters 3 to 12, because it kind of just fills out the rest of Samuel's life, but it's just kind of in bits and pieces. And the reason it's about Samuel's life, um, her harvest, her fruit, is going to be seen in the way that Samuel lives and in the harvest that is in his life. Though it's ultimately God who gets the credit um, for what Samuel did, um, Hannah was watering and sowing seeds, and that was her God-given work. Samuel's character in his life of ministry is no small thing. God used Samuel to set the foundations for a new stage in Israel's history. Samuel is the first to occupy an office as prophet, Now, up till now, God had spoken through people here and there, but not through one person over a long period of time. The first person that has that happen is Samuel. Um, If you want to look at verse 11 in chapter 2, it says that Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So again, we see the immediate fruit of Hannah's training and that Samuel was actually a blessing to have around in the temple. Even as a three-year-old, he must have been obedient and able and willing to just help with the chores that were age-appropriate. One book suggested maybe he just opened doors or retrieved things for Eli, but he did what he could there. Then in chapter 3 of First Samuel, um, God is calling to Samuel. You'll remember how God calls him, and he keeps mistaking it for Eli. Um, the Bible says that at this time, Samuel was still a boy. Um, it was before the ark was captured in battle, so this is still early on in Samuel's life of service. Then verse 7 says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So we can observe from this that Samuel is obedient before he knows Yahweh in a personal way. His obedience was not something that saved him or earned him favor with God, but it's encouraging for us as moms or as women um, who work with children just to see that there is a benefit to teaching children to obey even when they have not yet been saved. The obedience is not an end in itself, but it's beneficial and it's safe for our children now, and it will be a blessing to them after salvation to have learned obedience. Chapter 2, verse 16, says that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with the linen ephod, and it says the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Then in verse 26, it says, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And then as as I said before, you can keep going all the way to chapter 12. It fills in the rest of Samuel's life. Um, One of the best commendations Samuel receives is that Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. So Samuel truly heard God's words and he um, was faithful to deliver them to either the nation of Israel or to whomever the specific person was that God intended those words for. Samuel walked in the ways of God and he was trusted by the people, including Saul and David. After Eli died and the ark was captured, Shiloh was no longer the place of God's specific presence, and so it was not the place where people went to worship. So Samuel started to go on a circuit between, I think, three towns, and then when he was done going on that circuit, he would go and judge, and he would lead the people in um, feast, and then he would go back to Ramah, which was his boyhood home. And so it's possible that if Hannah was still living, she was able to enjoy a closer relationship to Samuel at that point. So the nation was in desperate need of godly leaders during Hannah's day. Her desire to see God exalted, to be a godly mother, to bear a son and train him and give him to full-time service comes to fruition after a lot of heartache, after a lot of disappointment and affliction. The fires of affliction culminated in desperate prayer, and those fires, no doubt, purified Hannah's heart. This made her more fit to raise a godly son and to praise God publicly. She reaped a harvest, and she bore fruit for God. The fruit of her life blessed her husband and her son and no doubt her um, subsequent children, which I don't even think we read. She had more children after Samuel. God gave her children, I think, five more children. The fruit of her life blessed the nation of Israel. It blessed King David and it even blesses us here in the United States in 2016. So we don't know how God will use the affliction that's in our lives but we can trust him just as wholeheartedly as Hannah did that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about some implications from Hannah's biography. We can all probably relate to like maybe one thing in her life, probably more, but whether it's um, the specific thing of child, childlessness that was her first affliction there, um, it could just be that we're not receiving something that we deeply desire. could be some other affliction. Um, it could be that we know what it's like to be married to a man who loves God but whose sinful decision is creating a difficult living situation, reaping the consequences of someone else's sin, reaping the consequences of your own sin. Um, but we can identify with her, I'm sure, in a few ways. So what would God have us take away? Well, first of all, follow Hannah's example of following God. She just is not easily distracted. Um, she's not getting off course and getting looking to the side. She's looking straight ahead. And what I mean by following God, I mean that she is um, doing and being what she knows God wants her to do and be. So she's um, running forward, and she's not looking sideways. <laughs> she's looking ahead. Um, she could have gotten distracted by Penina personally and gotten her focus onto Penina, but her focus doesn't seem to be on Penina. Everything's hurtful that Penina is saying, but her focus seems to be on God. She can't wait, it seems, to get to the temple and to go and pour out her heart to the Lord. Um, then again, she's not distracted by Eli and his rebuke of her. Um, she just wants to explain herself and then, and keep doing what she's doing, keep praying. Uh, She wasn't distracted by her care for Samuel. Um, She magnified God uh, for what he had done instead of making much of Samuel and what a wonderful gift the giver gave. She loved the fountain of delights and the giver more than the gifts he gave to her. So her love for God is just obvious in how she talks about him and how she talks to him when she prays. Our Wellspring Discipline number one is very similar to Hannah's first priority. So just be encouraged by Hannah's love for God in a time when revelation from God was a lot less than what we have. It was also in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There were dangers from other nations, as well as internal dangers within her nation from the 12 tribes of Israel. There was a lot of sexual immorality. Worship of God was not biblical, and it was mixed with pagan and natural sinful practices. I would dare to say that the world Hannah lived in was more morally degenerate than the society that we live in. Her love for Yahweh shines like a bright light in the dark backdrop of her world. The second implication we can take away is that prayer is a privilege and a comfort. God has given us access to himself through Christ. We can come before his throne boldly because we are counted righteous, because Jesus traded his righteousness for our condemnation. Since we have this privilege, we would be remiss to forego the comfort and the help that we receive from pouring out our soul to the Lord. The third implication for our lives is that growing in humility is appropriate as well as beautiful. Hannah's name means grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is receiving something that we don't deserve. Hannah's humility displayed itself in her ability to bestow grace on the people in her life. To people that were close to her, like her husband, and to the people she didn't know as well, such as Eli. Gracious behavior, by definition, is not dependent on another person's worthiness, their kindness, or their respectability. I don't know what Hannah actually physically looked like, but I do know that she was beautiful. She was beautiful according to God's definition. God tells us that a beautiful woman has a gentle and a quiet spirit. That is a spirit which is calm and it's still because it's trusting. God. It's not fretful and distrusting. Hannah had a lofty view of God. She knew that she knew God, and that's what produced the humility in her. So I'm going to close by reading Psalm 142, which when I found the Psalm maybe about a year ago, I was studying Hannah, and I thought, oh my goodness, it's by David, but I felt like Hannah could have written it, so I want to close with this. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and just for how Hannah's example and the words of her prayer are such an encouragement to us. I pray, God, that we would set our hearts to be diligently seeking you, seeking to know you, so that we can not only shepherd our hearts so that our actions please you and are beneficial to the people that we are around, but so that we are able to praise you in the way that Hannah does. God, I just ask that we would know you, that we would honor you, and that um, what we know about you would flow out of our hearts and out of our mouths to the people that we are around. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.